Hi there, it's Melvin. Just wanted to take a moment to thank the team over at Thryzer for supporting this month's podcast sessions. Thryzer is a payment platform that you have to check out if you are a private pay therapist and accepting out-of-network benefits. It basically helps clients save on therapy up front. Thryzer can help verify a client's out-of-network benefit ahead of the first session so that they get transparency up front on what their out-of-pocket costs will be. I'll tell you more about Thryzer here in the middle of our session, but if you go to sellingthecouch.com forward slash Thryzer, you actually and then enter the code STC upon sign up, you get your first $2,500 in fees waived. Again, that's over at sellingthecouch.com forward slash Thryzer, and be sure to enter the promo code STC. So we'll jump right into today's podcast session. Hello, hello. Welcome to session 241 of Selling the Couch. Hope you're having an awesome day. And so I'm recording this again in early April, and I'm really hoping that by the time that this podcast airs that things with the COVID epidemic are a little more manageable, keeping my fingers crossed, especially I've been thinking about you guys and and just your businesses and how you're doing. I mean, I was just thinking, you know, we walk in such a unique space, right? Because we have to hold both the grief of our clients while navigating our own grief and through this whole process, right? And on well, just in general, but I feel like, especially in this day and age. So I hope that you are doing well and taking good care of yourself. My conversation today is just based on a simple idea that I was thinking about, which is, can you do a text-based therapy in an ethical way? As you guys have probably seen, there's a lot of conversation around this. And my guest today is Bill Hudenko. Bill is a professor over at Dartmouth College. He's actually a research assistant professor in the Department of Psychological and Brain Sciences at Dartmouth College. He also teaches at Dartmouth's School of Medicine. And he's also the CEO of Trust Health. And they developed an app called Trust. And it's actually based on research that they did at Dartmouth College on the efficacy of text-based therapy, whether this even works, what populations it works well for. And I think this conversation is going to lead to some pretty fascinating knowledge and insight for you. I definitely did me as I as I was having this conversation. So we are going to cover a range of different things. First of all, we start out with, you know, just a little bit more about the research, what they did, what they found, and all of those different things. And then we talk a little bit about how does trust work? How can it be used as an adjunct to in-person therapy? Uh, What are some of the benefits of using this medium and all of those different things? I feel like you know, especially with this COVID epidemic, one of the things that I'm realizing and that I think our field is realizing is we really have to think differently about how we provide our services. And insurance companies are thinking differently about how mental health services are provided. 
I hope that this conversation is just particularly helpful for you. I wanted to invite you to download the free online course guide if you are thinking about launching an online course and just want some things that have been helpful uh, for me and some of the tough lessons that I learned along the way. You can again download that over at sellingthecouch.com forward slash online course guide. And as I mentioned right at the beginning, we're actually starting a live cohort called Online Course School. This is a great opportunity to join with other therapists to validate and launch and record your online course. The best way to find out about this and to keep updated when the core launches is to download, again, the online course guide over at sellingthecouch.com forward slash online course guide. Hudenko. Hey, Bill, welcome to Selling the Couch. Hi, thank you. I'm excited for our conversation because one, I'm like nerdily excited that to always have conversations with fellow psychologists and then two, fellow psychologists that are really doing out-of-the-box things. And so I'm grateful for your time. And I know that especially in this time of the COVID epidemic, a lot of clinicians are thinking about what does it mean to be a private practitioner? How do I provide services to my clients? And you guys have developed something pretty cool. And so I'm really excited to hear about it. Yeah, thanks so much. I, I look forward to telling you more. So for you, when you created the Trust app, it was more than just creating an app. You actually wanted to study the efficacy of messaging-based interventions in order to help people with mental health concerns. Uh, Would you mind just sharing with us what you did and, and what you found out through this? Yeah, absolutely. So I've been in the technology industry for uh, almost 10 years now and been involved in several different companies. And this, this most recent one called Trust is really, it came from a lot, some research that I was doing and my interest in messaging-based intervention. And what I had seen in the commercial industry was that a lot of companies were starting to readily provide messaging-based interventions for clients. And yet there wasn't really a lot of information about in the research world around, did it work? And what do you do? What's the best practice in this field? So a few years ago, some of my colleagues and I got together and submitted a a grant to NIMH. We got funded and we wanted to do a a randomized controlled trial to look at, does this actually work in in a population of people who have serious mental illness? And if if it did work and we thought that it was really promising, then we, we imagined that it might work in other populations as well. And so we set about doing this research and found that a little bit more context there. So we did over 12,000 messages as part of this study, and we got a lot of different metrics we measured against normal treatment, and then we met, did a follow-up at three and six months. And I can't, I can't share a ton of uh, in specific details about the study because we're actually just about to send the manuscript in for publication. But what I can tell you is that it was very positive. We saw really great clinical change across a number of different metrics. And yeah, so, so that really inspired me and made me think about, I think that this is really a treatment methodology that has major benefits. And in some of the big benefits I, I, that I've been struggling with for so many years were, was how could we make mental health care more accessible to people and more equitable? And how can we make it more cost efficient and scalable? And if you focus on 
a corner piece of the treatment as being a messaging-based intervention. It just solves a lot of those problems. And so since we've completed our research, and luckily more and more research has been coming out in messaging-based intervention to demonstrate its efficacy with other colleagues of mine, I thought it was time to create a product where the focus was on building a new digital ecosystem for clinicians where one of the main tools that they have is this messaging-based intervention. So interesting. So really random. And if you can't share it, that's perfectly okay. But so when you guys did the initial study for this and you were doing like the 12,000 messages, how did you do it? Because at that point, the this ecosystem wasn't developed, right? Yeah. Yeah. So what we did was we wanted to build our treatment methodology on empirically based treatments that are, we already know work, and then just to modify them so that they were most effective for messaging. So we used a framework of illness management and cognitive behavioral therapy. It's kind of two treatment modalities that have been used a lot and adapted for this kind of work. We developed a treatment manual around it, trained all of our clinicians on it, and then we monitored every single message and did supervision and made sure that they were adhering to the treatment manual. So we tried to be very concrete in how we went through the steps to be able to really evaluate if it was effective. So you said something at the end, which I just thought was really interesting. So you found out all of this like really interesting information, and there was a part of your brain, you were like, you know what, this is something where there's such a need because of the cost efficiency, all of those different factors where I could, we could create a product around this. How did your brain make that leap from the research side of this to the, you know, the entrepreneurial side? Yeah, a great question. Well, so I do have a background in coding and computer science. So the origin of my interest in technology really came all the way back to 2010 when I first was thinking about the intersection between technology and mental health and how we might be able to use technology to advance our field. And back then at 2010, it seems like it, just yesterday, but it much was different back in 2010. And the original work that I did was really getting into industry and creating a product, which ultimately we scaled that product, which was around collaborative care primarily. I sold it, became the chief science officer of the acquiring company. And so by the time that this idea notion for trust came along, I think my mind is already in the space of, of how do we commercialize things? How, how do we bring this to more people? And I think that it's, it's a really important time right now to figure out how can we bridge science and industry? Because very often these two things don't interact that well. And so a, a lot of what I do is thinking about how can we make sure that we have technologies that are based on good science and that have good ethics behind them and that we can make sure that we expand those into general practice through commercial industry into a lot of people's hands so it's maximally effective. Yeah. So what I hear you say is like where your real passion is, how do you take technology intersect and but make sure that technology that's being put out in the world is is backed by science. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So I might nerd out here a little bit. So what would you say like you know, because you developed this first product right before before trust even was on the radar. What would you say are two of the biggest lessons that you learned in scaling that product that you brought into developing trust? 
Well, the first thing I would say is that I had no understanding at all of business when I started my first company. And so it was really a, a meteoric learning curve for me to understand how to make a company successful. And one of the very first things I learned was about what it means to have a company at all. And, and I think coming from academia, a lot of my perspective was, we, this is a great idea, and I think it's going to be really helpful to people. And I, it, it took me, it seems simple now in retrospect, but it took me a while to really understand that you have to make money in business <laughs> or else the company doesn't work. <laughs> and so I think that there is a difference between having a really great idea and then figuring and then finding out the product market fit and understanding who will buy this, who's your real customer, what do people really want? And so, you know, sometimes that's very different and in fact, I'd say often it's very different than what you imagine. So that's a really big lesson that I learned through the process. And then I think the other thing I learned, which uh, or a, another big lesson was a lot about how you can scale a company effectively and create like all, all of the incredible things that are required to execute on a vision. You know, I think a lot of people have said that it's 99% you know, sweat and 1% you know, inspiration when you feel like you have a really good idea. And, and that's really true because if when you pick up your phone and you use an app that just seems extremely simple, it's likely that it's cost hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars to make that app between the coding, the marketing, the design work. It's, it's just a very uh, time intensive, energy intensive process. And so I think as you get more and more experience, you become better at understanding how to make that efficient and how to make it successful. Yeah. And I, I would imagine like just to have patience through that whole process, right? Because I think, I mean, I know that many of us look at something like an app and we're like, oh, you know, maybe we just, maybe I can create my own app, but they don't see sort of all the the, the hard work and the hours and hours and the, and the costs that go into something like that. No, yeah, absolutely. Again, on the surface, and especially with you know many of the wonderful tools that are out there today to make the coding easier and to, to use things that have already been done, many different frameworks that are available and et cetera, it can seem deceptively easy. But th there really has to be a business. There has to be a, a vision around how to make that run, how to make it profitable, how to get the team together, how to maintain support on these products that Many people, when they first get into it, they are surprised at, at how detailed and complex it can be. Yeah, no, absolutely. Last question with regard to the scaling aspect. So what was a mistake that you think you made in scaling with that, that first company? Oh, we, we definitely don't have enough time for that. <laughs> <laughs> but you, you learn so many mistakes. There's so many mistakes that you just learn so much. I think one of the, the big mistakes I made, especially early on, was not not understanding the importance of the team that you develop early on. And I kind of went into it thinking, oh, I, I have some technical expertise. I went into it with a business partner and we just, you know, I just didn't really, again, know much at all about business. Now, one of the very first things I think about when starting a company is who is going to make this successful? And what's the background and knowledge of the people and, and what's the character of the other people you work with? Uh, because what, when, if you are successful with it, then um, people's characters uh, get, 
get tested and challenged. And if you aren't successful, it's often because your team is unable to really execute on the vision. So it, I think it's a huge lesson around getting really great people around you. And often, often, and this is the case, especially for me, a lot of people who fill in your weaknesses, it's a really important thing to look for. Yeah. And I mean, and you're saying this, like having the humility to realize like one, you have weaknesses and then to even examine to say, these are where they are and this is where my shortcomings are. Absolutely. Yeah, you're right. This probably could be a whole other podcast conversation. So we'll, <laughs> we'll divert back. I wanted to ask you, how exactly does trust work? That Yeah. So one of the big differences, well, there's two really big differences in our model from what you might see in some of the competitors out there. So the first thing is that we are a messaging-based intervention only. So we don't do video or audio on our platform very intentionally, and it's an asynchronous service. So the way it would work is when clinicians uh, come to us, they would fill out an application, they'd go through our training process where we teach them about the best practice and science of messaging-based intervention. Once they get on the platform, then they are available for people in the same state to work with them. So a client would, would download our, our app, they would search the state for any available clinicians, and then they would match up with that clinician and get started doing the work. And for clients, we would charge $55 uh, for a week or $199 for a month-long subscription. So that's kind of the basic framework of, of how things work and get started. And we're different in that we don't offer these other services. However, the other big difference is that our company we are really about best practice. And because of that, we don't put any restrictions on our therapists around what they can do with clients. In fact, many of our therapists will work with somebody in person in addition to using our service remotely. So it can be the case that you're working with someone and you decide that you need to talk to them or meet with them in person, and then you can schedule that and do it as you would normally. Or you can be working with someone and add our service to what you're doing currently. So we, we want to provide a technology and a tool that enhances what therapists can do. And it, it begins with this messaging-based intervention. And then there's an incredible number of technologies that we're layering in to allow the therapist to do even more effective work on our platform. That's so interesting. Just offhand, do you know like the... Do you have any idea of like the percentage, which I'm sure you do, percentage of clinicians who just use it solely as a tech-based app, I mean, a text-based app versus the ones who do in-person in, session, in therapy and use it, you know, as an adjunct as well? I, yeah, I don't have an exact percentage off the top of my head, but I, I can tell you that the majority of our clinicians do not, or they're mainly doing remote work and not necessarily meeting with people in the course of treatment. So interesting. Yeah, that's a lion's share, but we definitely have both. Yeah, that, that is really interesting. And then, again, this is probably like way outside of an area that you would might know, but I think you may know. In terms of like billing and all of that stuff for like for the clinician side, how does all of that work? Like, do they just bill ins like they bill insurance a specific way with this app, or how? I guess how is the clinician also getting compensated? Yeah, yeah. So this is one 
area that I think we're going to see huge change in probably probably this year and maybe next year uh, because there's been a lot of movement around reimbursement for these kinds of telehealth services, whereas traditionally there was really only reimbursement for video sessions. Currently, there is no CPT code to reimburse on this service. So it does mean that people would be paying out of pocket for the service. And, and again, we're, I think that will change shortly. But one of the ways that we work with that is we work with colleges and we work with businesses and to try to uh, get their population access to the service so that that subsidizes some of the costs. And then we try to keep our price point as low as possible to, to maximize access as much as possible for people who need the service anywhere. And then in terms of how we pay clinicians, what we try to do is to really create the highest amount of reimbursement of any comparable service to the clinicians. And we also try to make it extremely transparent. And so we just have a revenue sharing model where we, at a minimum, we give therapists 50% back on any revenue that comes through the service. And then if they're high utilizers of our tool, we give them up to 90% back. And again, that's just because we really want to incentivize clinicians to use the tool. And we also have a strong belief in making sure therapists are compensated for good work that they're doing. Yeah, no, um, that's absolutely. You mentioned a little bit earlier about uh, some of the trainings and, and that's something that one of the ways that you guys really stand out. So I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit more about that, that training that you provide to clinicians that are interested in, in using the app. Yeah, sure. So we do it via webinar. Um, so we try to bring a f- number of different clinicians in every week. We average about one new clinician every day that will apply to the service. And during those webinars, we have sections of our training where we really start with the science of messaging-based intervention and what we know today, what are the, the questions that are still available around what we want to learn. And then we go through the specific techniques that have been shown through research to be most effective with messaging-based intervention, and then ending in a treatment guide that we have created based on the research work that I referenced earlier, where all clinicians get access to that treatment guide to use at any time with the clients with whom they work. That's, I mean, I, I love that. I love the fact that it's not just downloading an app, that you're actually providing clinicians with a structure on how to scientifically use this well. Yeah, and we also are very big on support. So, of course, not only will we support users if they have any technical questions, but we are available for clinical consultations. We're available to support clinicians with using technology and thinking about how to translate in-person work to telehealth. So, again, we, we are really invested in this as a treatment model. And I can tell you that we have just seen incredible things with this. I really don't think you could replicate in-person. And, and that's part of what's just so exciting to me. You're saying like the benefit to clients and the healing that that's happened to them. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And just to say one word about that, I mean, what is so incredible to me about this particular methodology is that it is so accessible to people at their, in their everyday lives. And it's so much more frequent, the contact, because our clinicians will, will talk with people Monday through Friday. And, and so you will see things happen clinically that are amazing, that, that wouldn't possibly happen 
in someone's normal life. Like, you know, someone, for example, they, they break up with a, a boyfriend or a girlfriend, and then the, the very next hour, they might be crying in their room, but they're messaging our therapist, and they're telling him what they're thinking in that moment. And that kind of information, it's just really hard to get when you're seeing somebody only once a week or once every two weeks, because it's always retrospective report and people have changed how they think about it or how they talk about it or how they frame it with you. And we're getting this really raw, important information about how people think through things and what their emotions are in, the, in those situations that I think is just incredibly clinically valuable and helpful to us as we try to help others. Yeah, it's so fascinating because I can't even think of I mean, even in my own like training, like I can't think of anything where you get that sort of live, raw, you know? Yeah, it's just very fascinating. I wanted to ask you like a, a random offshoot question because I imagine folks that are listening will probably wonder about this. But so what happens like in a situation where there is like suicidal ideation, psychosis, like or homicidal ideation, and you're getting these sort of text messages? What, I guess at that point, what's the... Protocol. Yeah, great question. So we, we make it clear when people onboard onto it and, and when we train all of our clinicians that trust isn't for emergency services. And that is because just like if someone were to send you an email at 3 a.m., our clinicians are likely sleeping and not going to necessarily get that message. With that said, we also understand that part of the work we do as clinicians is emergency service work. And that even when we tell someone that it, a service shouldn't be used for that purpose, we still sometimes get contact through it. So what we did is on the app, we have a, a button for our clients that, that is an emergency service contact. So if they tap it, it'll immediately connect them with 24-7 messaging for crisis. We also do, unlike some of our, of our competitors, we believe in gathering the information about who that person is. So we actually collect their name and their email address and their phone number. So the clinician can try to reach out and, and find that person and, and try to help them if necessary, even though, again, it's kind of out of the scope of our terms of service. Well, that's neat that you guys do that, that extra step along the way. Bill, I'm really grateful for you, grateful for our time, grateful for just for your out-of-the-box thinking. Where can we learn more about the Trust app and about you as well? Uh, yeah, so if you'd like to learn more about our app, you can. the best place to go is on our website, which is trust, T-R-U-S-S-T dot app, A-P-P. And you can also reach out to us at any time at support at trust dot app. And if you'd like to learn a little bit more about me and my background, probably the best place is through my, my profile on Dartmouth. So that would be P-B-S dot Dartmouth dot E-D-U and then forward slash people you can see my profile there. Uh, Bill, thank you again for doing this and have a great rest of your day. Great. I appreciate your interest. Thank you. Hey there. Hope you enjoyed my conversation with Bill. And especially if you've been wondering about text-based therapy and whether to incorporate it into your private practice, I hope that today's podcast conversations uh, just giving you some additional insight um, you can learn more about the Trust app over at trust.app. That's T-R-U-S-S-T dot A-P-P. And you can learn more about Bill and the work that he's doing over at pbs.dartmouth.edu forward slash people. 
This was a, a really, for me, I think one of the biggest takeaways from this conversation is just thinking a little bit differently about how we can serve our clients. You know, I think, especially I know that this whole world of text therapy, recently there's just been a lot of like negative publicity around it, especially around privacy and all of those things. And I think it's really cool that there's a tech company that is started by a psychologist and it's based on research. So I feel like that itself is just such a wonderful thing, especially, and Bill and I were actually talking about this after the interview wrapped up, but especially with this, you know, COVID epidemic, I think there were some really unique practical things that, you know, something like a text-based therapy app like Trust can do. For example, you know, with an adult client who is at home with a child who, and they're trying to like teach, homeschool the child, right? Because the schools are closed. Just the fact that you can have real-time conversation wanted to invite you to download the free online course guide if you are thinking about launching an online course and just want some things that have been helpful uh, for me and some of the tough lessons that I learned along the way. You can again download that over at sellingthecouch.com forward slash online course guide. And as I mentioned right at the beginning, we're actually starting a live cohort called Online Course School. This is a great opportunity to join with other therapists to validate and launch and record your online course. The best way to find out about this and to keep updated when the core launches is to download, again, the online course guide over at sellingthecouch.com forward slash online course guide. You can learn more about Therapy Notes and the services that they provide over at sellingthecouch.com forward slash therapy notes. And show notes to today's episode can be found over at sellingthecouch.com forward slash session and the number 241. Have a great rest of your day and please stay safe. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Selling the Couch podcast. For more great content and to stay up to date, visit www.sellingthecouch.com. So if you've been listening to the STC podcast for a while, or you've been listening to podcasts and you've had this thought of, Mel, I would love to launch my own podcast in order to grow my business. Just wanted to encourage you to check out our free podcasting workshop, which is over at sellingthecouch.com forward slash podcasting workshop. You can basically sign up at a day and a time that works for you. It's 90 minutes. And when I do these workshops or when I record them, I truly believe in the quality teaching, so it's going to be well worth your time. We're going to go through gear recommendations and how to launch strategically and how to think about monetizing your podcast and how to line up your podcast with your existing offers and how to do it strategically and authentically uh, and not salesy and slimy um, and all of those things. So again, the link is over at sellingthecouch.com forward slash podcasting workshop.